what you want You can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes Well, you might find Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here every Monday at 10 a.m. if you're in New York or the East Coast or whatever time it is where you are on prn.fm. And you'll find our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com. And some two of those now, those back shows are with the cultural critic, John David Eberg. John, you there? I am. I'm here, yes. Great. So John is a cultural critic, author of over 20 books. You'll find his essays at culturaldiscourse.com and his very interesting talks on YouTube and Google Play. So just search on John David Eberg. And two weeks ago... Uh, John and I were talking about postmodern French thinkers. It's kind of hard to classify them. Sometimes we say post-structuralists, but John was making the point that they are actually, two of them are actually structuralists. So anyway, <laughs> we were talking about Lacan, Foucault, Deleuze, and Derrida. So John, why don't you sort of summarize what we were talking about, and then we'll go on and catch up with a couple of others. Sure. Um, last time we were talking about um, uh, the ideas of uh, Lacan and Foucault and um, Gilles Deleuze, and um, we were going through those ideas, and Derrida also, um, about how they created the basic landscape of contemporary uh, philosophy. And uh, we went through the ideas of each one of those, but with Foucault we had the idea uh, of the episteme that he figured out uh, each epoch of Western civilization uh, has an episteme with its own internal anatomical structure. And uh, he goes through and talks about the systems of visibility that are part of inarticulability that are part of the nature of these epochs. And then we went through uh, with Derrida, we talked about deconstruction uh, and how deconstruction is basically an attack on binary thought systems. Uh, Derrida is very fond of showing how in the logocentric tradition of the West, metaphysical thought systems have been erected out of binary uh, binary uh, energies. You get a pair of opposites, such as the opposition between uh, speech and writing, for instance. One tends to be privileged over the other, and then he shows... Um, as speech has been privileged because of the metaphysics of presence over writing. Writing is seen as, as a dead supplement to speech. And he goes in and shows that the opposition is really a false one, that the one is contained in the other and therefore um, not valid. And so he pulls down and dismantles and deconstructs uh, these Western thought systems. And with Deleuze, we went through um, his basic sort of uh, metaphysics of the generation of form, um, how ideas uh, incarnate themselves from the virtual world, and they incarnate themselves out of planes of consistency and stratify into uh, planes of organization um, and form arborescent trees, basically, as uh, multiplicities, what they call multiplicities, get locked into the various strata and what they do there and how they transform and, and what happens. So in a nutshell, that's what we talked about last time. So speaking of uh, nutshell, about uh, maybe 20 years ago, 
uh, these figures swept into academic thought in general and very much, interestingly, architecture in particular. And when Derrida would come to the United States and visit Columbia University, he would not hang out with the philosophy department but with the architecture department. And architecture um, uh, at that time became trying to become very pretentious <laughs> and being into theory. Uh, they started in the in the late 60s with uh, de Saussure, and then so they were all into semiology and uh, trying to distinguish between uh, semantics and syntactics. And it was, this is where I first began to notice herd mentality, so I would say to my semiological-oriented uh, colleagues, this isn't going to get you anywhere in architecture. Why aren't you looking at Merleau-Ponty? And they would say, well, no, we have to, you know, now they're all into Merleau-Ponty. But, um, so, but what, so these poor architects, the stuff comes sweeping in, and fortunately <clears throat> there were two series of books I'm forgetting the titles and publishers, but they were tiny little books, uh, maybe 80 or 100 pages, small format, and they were graphic. Semiotext. That's the publisher of those. Okay. Semiotext. So that yeah. you, you could read that tiny little book on Lacan or Deleuze, and they would go back and also do Freud and Marx, et cetera, and try to right. keep up on this stuff. So all my colleagues were buried in those books. Yeah, um, yeah. Semiotext was uh, the publisher that brought out a lot of that stuff and introduced um, all these guys to uh, in, in tra translating them from French into English and introduced these translations and popularized it uh, and amongst the academic world. One of, one of the scandals, as I recall, was that um, the translation that that. A double negative in English is a positive, uh, but yeah. in Fran French, a double negative is a an emphasized negative. And so all the translations of Derrida had everything exactly opposite <laughs> of what he was saying. So when, yeah. ch when challenged with that, the response was, it doesn't matter. The point is to be pretentious, not to know what you're talking about. Not to know what you're talking about, yeah. Well, I think knowing what you're talking about does does actually help. Well, that's <laughs> I mean, why we're doing these. It does for me. Great, that's why we're doing these shows, and yeah, we're trying to sort through all this. Yeah. So, John, we we got through those thinkers uh, two weeks ago, and now we want to pick up on a couple of more and maybe try to round this out a bit. So, uh, whom else should we be familiar with? Uh, well, we should probably talk about uh, Jean Baudrillard. Okay. The ideas of uh, Jean Baudrillard. Um, I, I think that, in, in a way, he was an outsider uh, amongst this group. Um, he was probably closer to sociology um, and also the arts, like photography. And he was kind of an amateur photographer as well. Um, but he and his ideas uh, were very influential on. Um, they were influential in the art world, in, in the world of contemporary art in particular, and also in film. Uh, the movie uh, The Matrix, for instance, uh, makes reference to him because he came up with this idea of what he calls hyper-reality, and he says that uh, hyper-reality is what is happening right now. The West
West is liquidating all of its values, and it's descending into a nihilism where it's transforming the world by duplicating it. So everything is being duplicated. The world is being replaced by what he calls the simulacrum. Uh, and so this is his famous uh, 1981 book, Simulacra and Simulation, uh, which I would recommend if anyone wants to read him to start with that book. Um, it's very beautifully written. Um, and it goes into this idea that um, we're replacing the world and liquidating our values, and uh, we can't tell the difference anymore. Everything is artificial. Whether, whether something is real or not, we can't tell. Did Michael Jackson really die? Um, you know, there's this strange sense, you know, if I'm gambling in Las Vegas, am I really losing all that money, or is it just part of the game? Um, there's this haunting sense of... Um, irreality about everything. We're never quite sure anymore what's real and what isn't. And he was the guy who went into the architecture of all this and talked about how the West is replacing the real with the hyper-real, which is more real than the real. And we prefer the hyper-real. You know, like, uh, if you want to go to see the cave of Lascaux, you can't. You have to go to the simulacrum. There's a fake cave of Lascaux that's, that's built that you have to go and you have see that, but we prefer the fake anyway, especially uh, Americans do. And uh, so he wrote this book, too, on America uh, in 1986, where he came over and he visited America, and he liked it a lot, and he wrote about it, and he said, the thing about America that makes it great is, is precisely the things that um, other people deride it for. You know, it's roller coasters, it's theme park cities, it's Disneyland, it's movie stars. Those are all the things that are great about America, not its insipid wines or its gigantic museums where they try to stuff everything uh, into one place. What's great about America is precisely this, this sense for the, the hyper-real, the, the, that everything is a kind of a game. And he liked America quite a bit. I know some of these guys tend to deride it, but um, he liked America a lot. And so that's another good book to start with for Baudrillard is his book on America. Uh, it's very easy reading so, compared this, to some of his other stuff. So whereas this, Simulacra and Simulation is, is a difficult, uh, it might be a difficult go so, at first, but America is excellent. Cool. Now, does this uh, Simulacrum relate to our uh, going to Disney World and um, being in uh, Main Street or going to Las Vegas, a Venetian hotel and their gondolas and canals is, you know, is that, is that what we mean by the simulacrum? Yes, exactly right. That, that's it. Yep. Cool. So <laughs> why, why go to, uh, why, why go to Venice and deal with the expensive hotels when you can just, uh, uh, Go to uh, the fake Venice in uh, in Las Vegas. Right, exactly. That's it. <laughs> there's even there's we're even... replacing reality. So he has these books with titles like "The Gulf War Did Not Take Place," for instance, which is, um, of course, it did take place. But um, what he means is that it was as it was taking place, it was being replaced by the media to such a degree. I mean, it was the first sort of cable uh, war. It was televised on CNN, and this is the first Gulf War. Uh, back in the 90s, and it was uh, it was so hyper-mediatized that what we got was entertainment instead of a war. And um, so that's what he means when he says these puzzling things like the Gulf War did not take place. You have to understand what he, what he means by that. There's a, there's a sense of uh, being trapped in this gigantic Truman Show-style dome, and the Truman Show, um, he references it quite a bit as, as being the work of art that really best captures the epoch that we're living in, where you're never, there's always a sense of paranoia. You're never quite sure 
what's real and what isn't. And um, so he's the great uh, critic of, of hyper-reality. So, uh, and, we always, and he makes the point, too, that we always prefer the hyper-real. Um, if we saw real dinosaurs, for instance, they would be a disappointment to us. We would prefer the dinosaurs of Jurassic Park. We, we want the hyper-real, and that's the thing that um, is more interesting. It's more real than the real. Um, so that's Baudrillard. So uh, just to cover a few points here, for our listeners who might not be familiar with The Truman Show, could you describe what that movie was about? Oh, The Truman Show, yeah, that's a, that's a Jim Carrey movie um, that's um, loosely based on one of Philip K. Dick's novels, Time Out of Joint, which was written back in the 50s. Um, and it's sort of based on that. And it's about a guy who finds himself, uh, he's walking along the street one day, and then uh, a spotlight falls down on the ground, and he can't figure out where it came from. Um, and then he slowly starts to become paranoid. Um, he starts to suspect that his wife is not really his wife, but actually might be an actress pretending to be his wife. And more and more, he gets the sense that people are watching him. He starts finding uh, cameras everywhere, and he starts getting more and more paranoid. Uh, but of course, he isn't paranoid. He's actually a metanoid. He's figuring out that he is being observed, that he's being watched. And then he uh, gradually punctures through this hyper-reality to get behind the stage set where he meets the producer, who's played by Ed Harris, and uh, he's sort of a god figure. And he tells him, you know, yeah, we've, you're, you're an experiment. You're the first person that we've ever filmed from the day of his birth on and televised it as a TV show. And so Baudrillard says that perfectly encapsulates the kind of bizarre reality that we're living in now. Now that we've liquidated all of our values, um, there isn't any, it, Baudrillard is sort of the prophet of nihilism, there, there isn't any meaning anymore. And we expect other cultures to do this too. We expect other cultures to come along with us and liquidate their values, and when they don't, we resent them for it. Um, but yeah, so that's the Truman Show and Baudrillard. I, I, when I'm explaining the movie to my students, I, I uh, you know, sort of looking at another metaphysical level, the first impulse is to say this is about surveillance and we're all surveilled all the time. <clears throat> but there's another uh, level in there where uh, I describe to my students, I'm standing in front of you trying to be a teacher. I'm trying to act like a professor. And you're trying to act like students. And, you know, what should I, how, how should I be a student? Am I doing a good job of being a student or a teacher? And in what happens in the movie is the Jim, character, Jim Carrey, Truman character, says, I don't want to act this anymore. I want to be the real, genuine me. I want to break out of this um, uh, role and see who I really am which I guess our world is not too interested in letting us do anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's the subject breaking out there at the end. It's, it's, it's the, the Western metaphysical self, which is uh, really probably the most aggressive self idea that any civilization has ever produced. Ours is, is incredibly aggressive. We're descended from Vikings and warriors. Um, the whole culture was laid out in the Middle Ages as a culture of warriors, and you know we have that. The West has retained that, that sense of aggressive selfhood. And also, we are the first civilization to separate in our language. The pronoun I is separated out of the verb. It's not that way in Latin. If you say in Latin, I think, therefore I am, um, 
you don't separate the pronoun from the verb. They're, mm. they're mixed together. But the, these Viking guys, uh, long about 450 uh, A.D., were the first, and we find these carvings on, on Viking horns from Scandinavia. Um, there's a horn that dates from that period where it says, uh, I, whatever his name is, Halemger, uh, or whatever his name is, made this horn. And it specifically says, I made this horn. So somebody thought enough of it to not only inscribe it, but, but to insist that, it, you know, it was me who made this horn. And that's the West right there. That's the birth of the West with that Viking horn and the, and the inscription with the, with the pronoun there, uh, the I. That's the Western transcendental self that begins to emerge. And it evolves all the way through Descartes and um, all the way down to Heidegger, who is the first to begin to start the process of dismantling it. And uh, Heidegger puts the figure back into the ground by saying, uh, and, and there's a great degree to which Heidegger um, is fighting against his teacher Husserl, uh, who has a transcendent self, this, you know, and brackets Husserl brackets the natural attitude and says, Let's, the natural attitude is the naive way of looking at the world. Let's set that aside. That's the, what the, the normal everyday attitude. Let's set that aside is not important. What's important is the theoretical attitude. But Heidegger comes along and turns that upside down. He says, no, it's precisely the natural attitude that is the philosophical attitude because the natural attitude is Dasein. It means you already are engaged in a world doing something and you already have a pre-philosophical understanding of what it is that you're doing. So you're already engaged in being in the world uh, as a self, but you're in a world. And so Heidegger sort of puts the figure of the self back into the ground. Um, and I, interestingly, I mean, he's doing this at the same time that during World War One, camouflage is being invented. And camouflage is precisely the process of setting a figure back into a ground so that when you're looking down from the air, you can't see the figure anymore. It's blended back into the landscape. And Heidegger is doing the same exact thing in philosophy with being in time and his idea of, of the self being engaged in the world. It's always self plus world for Heidegger. And uh, that, though, begins the process of dismantling the self, where the, you know, the French picked this up, and they are the ones who deconstruct the self and pull it apart and say, well, there is no self. Foucault says, uh, there's no self. Um, this, he announces the death of man, and man, he says, the idea of man was a creation of the classical age of the 17th century, 17th and 18th century, and it was created by these institutions. And the institutions created the self through inscribing the self through all this paperwork and documentation. That's the self, and it's totally a fiction. And so uh, Foucault deconstructs it, and then these other guys come along, and, and they deconstruct it as well. So before we go on uh, further, let's just review that and say, um, describe again, what is this emerged self and obviously it doesn't disappear. What happens to it when it's re-engaged with its environment? In other words, uh, um, obviously, even as, a, let's say, an Enlightenment Westerner, I would say, yes, there's me, and then I see my environment. Uh, but how is it different when you've deconstructed the self? Um let me understand the question. So, um, how is it you different did, you uh, just, when you deconstruct it? What, you, what is the result? Well, I, I think I see what you're saying. The, the, the difference is um, it undermines uh, any pretense to metaphysical authority. So, so it undermines that, and it puts the individual back into uh, a group kind of consciousness where, 
let's say Deleuze, says there is no self, there's only a, a subject of enunciation who is embedded in a sign regime and is part of a, a, an assemblage, a collective assemblage of enunciation. And that puts the self back in with the group. And so you realize that you're part of, of an episteme that has structured your epoch where these ideas can no longer pretend to metaphysical certainty, and therefore um, it, it sort of undermines the great man, let's say uh, the Joseph Campbell or the Lewis Mumford, um, who has this pretense to metaphysical authority and goes through and produces these master narratives that are these encyclopedic, encyclopedic um, visions of culture and hands them down to us like Moses coming down from the mountain and gives us a sense of, here are the tablets that made civilization, and uh, they have come from me. You know, I've gone to the top of the mountain and come back down, and this is what I've brought to you. And so uh, the problem with that is that it gets tied up with um, master narratives and colonialization and enforced uh, doctrines, and all of that is what these guys are trying to dismantle. The, the French are very anti-authoritarian, and so they're going into the West and trying to pull apart and dismantle any sense of authority. I mean, there's really a battle here with the father, with, with the French, I think. that there, There's a lot of Freudian stuff going on, um, and it's the battle with the father. And uh, that's, that's a, what, anyways, that's the way I see it. So I got a, I got a question for you. I, I'm sort of um, familiar with and comfortable with some of these ideas from uh, decades of Buddhist studies and some studies of Taoism in uh, Chinese culture, do these French thinkers make reference to these uh, to uh, Indian or Buddhist or Chinese thought? No, I mean that's the, that's something that uh, is completely missing from French thought is is any kind of uh, looking at other civilizations and comparing their ideas to ours. I mean they they just it's very Eurocentric. Um, that's one thing you won't get from these guys, and they don't pay attention to other cultures. They don't follow them. Um, and I think there's a sense that <clears throat> they regard it as colonialist. It's, uh, you know, you're taking these ideas and, and you know, being a dominant uh, oppressor figure and stealing ideas from these cultures and passing them off as, you know, here's what, you know, the white man who goes in pulls the ideas out of an aboriginal culture or another culture, the cultural other, and says, you know, here's here's what it is. These are these ideas that I've stolen from this culture, and so they present it that way. Whether it's true or not, that's the attitude that they have to these other cultures. They they just regard them as something that shouldn't be talked about or messed with, and that's one thing I don't like about them. Um, but I think you know, there's a German thinker um, named Peter Sloterdijk who is a contemporary. He's still alive. He's a contemporary German theoretician, and he does. Um, he's different from all of these guys in the sense that he went to India early on. He studied with Osho, um, with, with a yogi. He went there, and he absorbed Indian Buddhist influences, and he came back, and he still played the game of critical theory, and he does it just as well as any of these guys do. Um, but he's got built into him an understanding of Indian philosophy that sort of he doesn't make reference to it a lot, but it's sort of hidden and implicit in uh, everything that he talks about. Hmm. And so Peter Schlotterdijk is, you know, he's the architect of the spheres theory. He comes up with this idea of spheres that we're always um, engaged inside of something. No matter what we're doing in the world, we're always somewhere 
inside something. There's always an interior. And so he talks about these macrospheres, and macrospheres are cultural ontological containers. And our Western macrosphere, um, in a way, ours is the first civilization to burst its protective uterine bubble, which Copernicus did for us in the 16th century. 1543, he publishes his work and shatters the macrosphere by decentering the Earth and putting it around the sun into orbit. And then the protective shell that was encasing us was ruptured and disappeared. And then so all of a sudden, and you see this in the art, because the art is always enclosed, uh, all of medieval art takes place inside of a world interior, a comforting uterine dome of cosmic spheres with God and angels watching over us. Everything is very comforting, and it's a kind of uh, metaphysical immunology. Um, metaphysics, Sloterdijk says, is applied uh, immunology. And then you see the, the rupture happen in Dutch art. Suddenly in Dutch art of the 17th century, the sky becomes this enormous, overwhelming presence. You know, it takes up three-quarters of the canvas of, of the average Dutch painting, and suddenly it's a revelation, this idea that Spangler talks about of infinite space that is the result of the collapse of the Western macrosphere. But um, the discovery of infinite space does eventually lead to the crises of the various crises of the self and existentialism, um, Kierkegaard's fear and trembling, and all of that comes out of this uh, anxiety of losing a world sphere that protects us. With Heidegger, for the first time, uh, the self is thrown into the world out in the open, unprotected, and anxiety becomes the baseline norm um, for consciousness as a result of that. They're, we're a very nervous civilization. So before we uh, pick up on that, going back to the uh, <clears throat> lack of interest on the part of these French thinkers in other cultures or a kind of prohibition against uh, being involved with them. That uh, describes something rather interesting that I've been experiencing, and that is um, in part due to my education, in part due to my late wife, Mimi Lobel, who very thoroughly explored other cultures. I mean, stuff we did together, we studied uh, Tai Chi with a great uh, Taoist master, we studied Buddhism with Tungam Trumper Rinpoche and, and others for many decades. And uh, we visited all the Mayan sites, and she would read all the remaining literature. Uh, most of their books were destroyed, but she would read what's available and become very familiar with it. And I've been teaching a course. We've, we've, we have a course uh, where I teach in non-Western architecture. So I teach one of the sections, and we do a week on India and a week on China and Japan and a week on pre-Columbian, Mayan, Aztec, uh, Incan, and <clears throat> sort of look at how their worldviews contrast with those of our own, and then we'll, we'll see how uh, Joseph Campbell approaches that and how Oswald Spengler approaches that. But I'm the only one teaching this course who does that. All the other sections are uh, post-colonial and talk about how the evil West uh, was destructive to these other cultures and then how um, uh, you can talk about the kind of culture shock that these cultures are in today due to their uh, resentment at how the West had treated them. Well, 
that's fine. I, you know, I do a couple of weeks on that, but none of them cover any of these other cultures. And there's, you know, I'm no longer teaching the course. You know, I've been kind of forced out. And so non-Western architecture sequence covers no non-Western architecture and no non-Western cultures uh, and only looks at, you know, Marxist interpretations of the interaction of these cultures with the West. And to me, Marx is a Western figure. He's not a non-Western figure. So, um, so you know, the, the, what you just described could be where this thinking that I'm uh, encountering has come from. Yeah, it's exactly where it's come from. And, I, you know, I think it's a big impoverishment. I think it's, you know, it's not a gain. I think it's a loss that we can't, uh, in this kind of discourse, talk about the ideas of, let's say, Indian metaphysics, which is, um, you know, an incredible system there that the Hindus built on, uh, you know, they, they understood spirituality, I think, better than any other civilization ever has. That's their thing. I mean, in each one of these civilizations, I think you find this in Spengler. He was very good at figuring out uh, the thing that each one of these civilizations was really good at, and they're all really good at something different, and they all have something to contribute. And there has to be a way of talking about uh, their idea systems without presenting it as though we're colonizing it or uh, being abusive toward these other societies. Or uh, there has to be a way, I think, of pulling in their ideas without uh, creating or giving the sense that we're creating a master-dominating narrative. Uh, because after all, cultures, every sign regime, and, and Deleuze talks about this, uh, he uses the phrase sign regime to refer to an, an episteme or a, a cultural epoch, a particular way in which signs signify within that regime. And he says there are basically five different sign regimes, and each one of them uh, has a completely different approach to understanding the way things signify within that within that sign regime. There's a pre-signifying sign regime, which he identifies with the tribal world, and then there's a signifying sign regime, which he identifies with the world of the despot, which is basically the Bronze Age king uh, who is basically paranoid and has this sense of power uh, that is enforced through that particular sign regime. And then there's a counter-signifying sign regime that's associated with the nomads. The nomads are always against civilization, and they occupy what he calls smooth space. And they're used to roving uh, and roaming across this smooth space, and they encounter the signifying sign regimes of cities which occupy striated space, what, what Deleuze and Guattari call striated space, which is space that has been coded, where all the flows within that system um, have been coded uh, and checked, and there's all these bridges and roads and checkpoints and counterbalances and so forth. And the nomad simply wants to move across this space, and he encounters the striated space of the signifying world of these cities as an obstacle. Mm. And essentially that's what it is. And um, there's conflict there. And then there's the uh, post-signifying sign regime, which he identifies with the Hebrew world. The post-signifying sign regime um, is the world of um, the Hebrew sense of the enunciation of the subject. He already sees the subject coming into being with characters like Moses, um, characters like that in the Old Testament, uh, Samuel and, uh, you know, Jacob, and all these figures are already subjectivities that act as what he calls points of enunciation, where sign regimes are suddenly generated from these personalities. 
And um, so, what is this? Hang on. Which is simply the the, the dismantling of these sign regimes out on a plane of consistency. The plane of consistency is their sort of metaphysical heterotopia, to use one of Foucault's terms. A heterotopia uh, is is a space of otherness um, where signs exist in some strange way. So stop, uh, stop a sec. But sign regimes have been built by, uh, and here's the, the point that I wanted to make, sure. is that those, those basic sign regimes have been built by colliding with each other. And they say that no sign regime is pure. They're always mixed. And I think it's the mixture that gives them their cultural texture and the sense that uh, new ideas come out of the collisions of these various sign regimes. So what, what does sign regime mean? It's just simply the French term for saying uh, this is a type of culture. So it's like a world, <laughs> like a worldview. It's, it's, it's the guarded way of putting it. It's it's like uh, Gene Gepser's st- structures of consciousness. He, he's more coming out of the Jungian tradition. Uh, Gene Gepser was. Um, he was a Swiss thinker. Uh, who put out a book called The Ever-Present Origin in 1949, and he lived in Switzerland and wrote this book, talking about um, how the evolution of history has been based on the emergence of these structures of consciousness, the archaic consciousness, uh, the magical consciousness structure, which has an internal structural anatomy to it that's very similar to what Foucault does with his epistemes. There's an anatomy to these structures of consciousness. Then the mythical consciousness comes along with the high civilizations, and then uh, the rational uh, consciousness structure, or the mental consciousness structure that the West, starting with the Greeks, built up on top of these earlier consciousness structures. And then finally, with uh, in the middle of the 19th century, with the mutation that he saw at precisely the point where Oswald Spengler says, no, in the middle of the 19th century, the West started to, to decline and fall apart because it lost its sense of what it was doing and began to dismantle it with the appearance. And you start seeing this with the appearance of a perspectivity in painting, where perspectival space, which was the West's great creation in the Renaissance, is dismantled and pulled apart, by again, by the French. Uh, painters like Manet and Monet and the Impressionists, Cezanne, these are the guys who dismantle the Western sense of space and they flatten it out into a two-dimensional... Um, sign regime, basically, what what Gebser calls the integral consciousness structure, and he doesn't see it as a decline at all. He sees it as a mutation into a different kind of thought space that relativizes all the other consciousness structures, including the mental consciousness structure, which sees everything from a the point of view of a subject, of a transcendent subject. That gets relativized. And all of these earlier consciousness structures for Gene Gebser are relativized in the integral consciousness structure, which is integral because it takes them up and integrates them into a, a space-free, time-free realm uh, that is diaphanous or transparent to transcendent energies that are coming through. And so you get the sense of the luminosity of modern art as this discovery of a perspectivity and moving into this integral consciousness structure that Gebser saw as a mutation. Basically... What Gebser's talking about as structures of consciousness is the same thing that Deleuze is talking about as sign regimes. It's just oh, okay. a different way of putting it. Cool. So, um, and again, what are Deleuze's uh, key sign regimes? Uh, the pre-signifying sign regime, which, which is the tribal world, basically. That corresponds to Gene Gebser's magical consciousness structure almost exactly. They both refer to the tribal world and the signifying sign regime, and that just simply refers to the advent of kings and the state 
um, and they call the state an apparatus of capture because it codes all the flows and captures them. Um, the state is an apparatus of capture, but it's a signifying regime that's inherently paranoid. And then the counter-signifying regime is the world of the nomads, um, and they're, they're counter-signifying because they're always at odds with, with the signifying regime. And then the post-signifying regime, which is associated with the Hebrews, um, and that comes in with, with the whole biblical world. And uh, then there's the A-signifying, which is just simply the plane of consistency where, where these things can, it's kind of a junk heap where they get dismantled. So those are the five basic sign regimes of Deleuze. Cool. Um, so now we've got one more thinker we wanted to cover, or maybe more than one. So tell us who Virilio is. Yeah, Paul, uh, Paul Virilio, yeah, absolutely. He's one of my favorite uh, thinkers. He's really brilliant. Um, he developed, um, <clears throat> he comes out of this group uh, as a kind of an outsider. He's coming, again, like Baudrillard, he was also an outsider, uh, but he's more, he began as an artist, and I think he came out of the, the world of art and architecture, and uh, is very much an outsider. He's the only one of these guys who isn't a Marxist and is a Christian, basically, even though those ideas don't really, you don't really get the sense that he's Christian when you're reading him, but, but he, he is. And he came up with uh, dromology, and this, the concept of dromology uh, comes from the, word, uh, the Greek word dromos, which refers to speed, and so the dromosphere is the realm of the moment the, the foot leaves the ground uh, and you get on a, a camel or an onager or a horse, you're in the dromosphere. Um, that's the primitive archaic dromosphere, but he sees uh, history as a process of acceleration of the dromosphere, where putting the body in motion through space <laughs> has gotten more and more developed and has accelerated more and more, and it's gotten faster and faster. But he says that um, the problem with the dromosphere is that it generates accidents, and he says that with every new invention within the dromosphere, uh, let's say the invention of the train, uh, brings a new kind of accident into being that's implicit within that technology. The train brings about the accident of derailment, and it's inherent to the nature of the dromosphere that it will bring these accidents about. Uh, the plane, the invention of flying, brings with it uh, the crash, as in the myth of Daedalus, which takes that into account, the myth of Daedalus and Icarus putting wings on and then sailing, uh, flying through the air, rather, uh, and then uh, Icarus falling, already tells you it brings the plane crash into being along with flight. I mean, it's perfectly encoded in that myth. And so uh, Virilio has this idea that um, every one of these technologies of motion through the dromosphere brings an accident about with it, and that we're heading eventually for a global accident. He thinks that Oops. we've laid the conditions out for the first time in history for the possible occurrence of a global accident. And he's vague about, he doesn't specify what the nature of the accident will be, but the putting of the planet inside of the dromosphere, so that the entire planet now is encased in a dromosphere, um, lays the conditions for what he thinks will occur as um, a global accident. Um, and so those are Virilio's ideas, briefly. Wow. Um, so in we've got a little time left. Uh, have you uh, synthesized these in your own thought? Is there a way you would, you know, organize and categorize them? Um, in my, um, are you asking about uh, the influence of these uh, thinkers on, on my work? Yeah, in other um, words, you've the, described yeah. these. Are any of them you think mm -hmm. off the wall or really are useful? How would you 
organized, categorized. Oh, I, I find them, yeah. I, I mean, I find them very useful, and Virilio's work in particular inspired my book, The Age of Catastrophe, um, because when I was reading him, he'll make reference to particular catastrophes. He'll talk about briefly about the sinking of the Titanic, let's say, or uh, the Bhopal accident that happened in India in the, in the 80s where uh, uh, poison gas was leaked out and injured thousands of people. Um, and he'll mention these accidents, and, but for me, I would, I'd, be, I'd be reading him and I'd think, well, why doesn't he talk about these individual accidents in detail? And I thought it would be interesting to have a book that analyzed these individual mm-hmm. accidents in detail. And so that's what the age of catastrophe is. Um, which discusses uh, accidents beginning with the sinking of the Titanic and the burning up of the Hindenburg, and then carries these accidents all the way through to look at the architecture of each one of them and see what happens with them. And there is indeed a kind of acceleration where I think the accidents, um, if you go down to the, the, the BP oil spill or, let's say, Hurricane Katrina, or um, they're, they're so... Uh, um, the accidents are not just industrial, they're not just uh, man-made, it's like there is no longer any such thing as a natural catastrophe, because the catastrophes such as Hurricane Katrina have emerged on a stage that has been totally handled by technical interference to such a degree that almost anything that happens now can be traced somehow back to technology, back to technical processes of, of interference, and they've gotten larger and larger, so that with something like the BP oil spill, you know, it affects the entire planet, uh, or the Fukushima accident uh, in Japan also uh, affects the entire planet, and it sends causes r- that ramify from that, going down through uh, years and years and years, uh, producing effects continually, so they're non-local. These accidents have become global in scale and non-local, so they burst the boundaries of particularity of place and the boundaries of particularity of time that you can associate, let's say, with, with the Hindenburg or the Titanic. They're very local accidents with very confined effects. But these larger accidents, uh, you know, such as Bhopal and the, the, the BP oil spill and Hurricane Katrina, um, you know, and the Chinese earthquake that took place, I think it was in 2008, where it was revealed for the first time that uh, the earthquake that took place was man-made. Actually, it was the result of the Three Gorges Dam that was built in uh, China sitting directly on a fault line, and the amount of pressure that it put on this fault line has been suspected to be the cause of this 2008 uh, earthquake. So we're we're getting man-made earthquakes now. I mean, it's amazing the, the, the level and the scale of this. And so... There really is no longer, in my book, uh, there really is, the, the point of it is that there really is no longer any such thing as nature. There is no longer any such thing as a natural catastrophe. It's all technicized. It's everything that happens that can be traced to technology in some, some sense. So that is the, an example of the influence of Paul Virilio on, on my writing, that, that book, The Age of Catastrophe. Um, but all these guys have influenced my thinking uh, in the way that I look at culture. Uh, it's given me a kind of a toolkit so that if I go into a particular narrative, whether it's a novel or a graphic novel or a film, I can look at the narrative and use these guys' ideas as tools from a toolkit to examine uh, the cultural product from all of these different angles, and I can always find something interesting going on. So it really expands my mental thought space and enables me to basically discourse about anything. So that's the value of knowing these guys' ideas. It expands 
your thought space, and you can analyze culture and look at it from almost any point of view that you want. And so it really is very valuable. I, I know there's an attitude uh, to, to where, you know, the the average person will say, you know, what's why is this stuff worth knowing? I mean, what's sign regimes and so what's what's worthwhile about it? But it really is worthwhile because it helps you. I was able to use these guys to understand contemporary art, for instance, in my book, Art After Metaphysics. And contemporary art is notoriously difficult to wrestle with and understand, but uh, I was able to understand it going through looking at the works of Anselm Kiefel, Kiefer and then Jackson Pollock and uh, Francis Bacon and Damien Hirst. I was able to get into those works of art and really understand them only because I had spent the time studying these French thinkers. Well, I mean, all, including media studies as well. McLuhan has been a big influence. Um, and it really helps shape the architecture of my thinking so that um, discoursing about culture becomes almost effortless with this stuff. Great. So it is very useful. Great. Um, so let's... Um take some time, maybe we'll get back to these thinkers, but let's take some time, since you're mentioning your books, why don't you give us an overview of <clears throat> who John David Ebert is, first in terms of your books, and then in terms of the lectures that are that we can listen to on our uh, phone while we're walking around. So, you know, how how did your ideas come together, and how would you describe them, and and how is that reflected in your books? Well, I mean, I came out of the field, as you know, of, of mythological studies. So I, I started with Joseph Campbell, and everything ramified from that point simply by following leads. So if I was reading Joseph Campbell, uh, and he would mention this guy Oswald Spengler over and over again, I figured that Spengler must be important. So I go to the library and I dig out the decline of the West, and then that opens a whole panorama there in front of me. So I read Spengler, and then Spengler is talking about um, how important Nietzsche was on his thinking. So I go and dig out Nietzsche, and I read him. And all of these guys are constantly making references to each other, and I follow the references, and it expands uh, the path. So I came out of the field of religious studies, myth mythological studies, and so my early books like uh, Celluloid Heroes and Mechanical Dragons are mostly applications of comparative mythology to contemporary popular culture. So I started off doing that, but then I gr gradually migrated into philosophy and became fascinated with the history of thought more and more. And as I did that, the books changed, the nature of the books changed, and then I started writing books about uh, contemporary uh, problems such as the new media invasion, which is a book that I wrote about that takes a look at this, you know, it's kind of a stress reaction response to the suddenness of the new media invasion that took place with the unleashing of the Internet in 1995 um, and the compatibility of the Internet with every gadget suddenly created a, a whole new landscape that liquidated uh, all of these things like bookstores started closing and record stores started closing. Um, it completely dismantled and liquidated the world that I grew up with, which was the tail end of the Gutenberg galaxy, what Marshall McLuhan calls the Gutenberg galaxy with all these literate media. Um, and I watched this electronic invasion melt this world down. Uh, and it was a little scary waking up every day and, and seeing, you know, uh, Gourmet Magazine is gone. Premier Magazine is gone. Uh, Virgin Records is closing. Tower Records is gone. And it, I became a, a bit alarmed by all of this. And well, so I John, John it as, that, as, uh, that hit you personally, right? I mean, you used to work yeah. in a used bookstore. 
right, exactly. I, I managed a, a bookstore in San Francisco for five years, um, and that was part of my whole world. Um, and I grew up, and as I grew up, my favorite place was always to go to either a bookstore or a record store and just hang out there for hours. And now all these spaces are being dismantled and they're disappearing uh, under the impact of all this electronic technology, which, I mean, it's opened up lots of new doors. Um, the Internet is wonderful. I mean, I'm dependent on it now for information. Uh, I've made a lot of friends uh, uh, from Facebook, uh, people that I never ordinarily would have met uh, that I've encountered. And so it has... It's been a trade-off. It, it has created a new landscape with new possibilities, but it also creates stress. And um, so that's what the new media invasion was about. And then uh, you also wrote The Age of Catastrophe, which we've already discussed and talked about, and then a series of books on film, scene-by-scene -scene books, Videodrome, scene-by-scene, Blade Runner, scene-by-scene, -scene, Star Wars, scene-by-scene. -scene. So I went through all of those. And uh, so I have lots of books of uh, Film reviews, such as post-classic cinema, which collects all the reviews that I wrote for our website, uh, cinemadiscourse.com, and then all the book reviews that I wrote on Amazon, I gathered together into a book called Texts, Collected Book Reviews, and so those are all in there. And um, I also put out Gods and Heroes of the Media Age, which studies the origins of the, the pop cultural superhero that sort of Conan the Barbarian and Tarzan and James Bond, characters like that. Uh, so I went through and uh, the landscape of pop culture and was talking about those uh, figures and heroes. And then I put out a book on graphic novels, too, called Giant Humans, Tiny Worlds, which analyzes graphic novels using all of these uh, philosophical ideas that we've been talking about. Um, and so it's been quite a romp, you know, going through all of this culture with all of these ideas and putting all of this stuff out. And then I have the uh, videos and talks that are available on YouTube, uh, and those came about simply because um, when I was trying to understand Heidegger uh, way back, I got frustrated because it was so difficult, and I went on to YouTube, and I thought, surely there must be somebody on here talking about Heidegger that would help me understand it, and there was nothing. Um, so I created these YouTube videos as a means to, to help people get into these texts and to understand them, uh, because there just wasn't anybody there doing it. So I went thinker by thinker. I've got videos on Heidegger and Deleuze and Guattari and Alain Badiou and uh, all of these guys, Foucault. They're all on there for free to try to help people understand these guys and get into their thought systems and make it easier for them to read. And so that's how the YouTube videos uh, came about. Right. So who is Alain Badiou? Oh, Alain Badiou, uh, he's still alive. He's sort of a, the uh, second generation of, of these uh, postmodern French thinkers. And he came up with the idea of the event, the event ontology. And, of course, Heidegger talks about the event, but Alain Badiou has this idea where he's trying to retrieve the subject, actually, and he differs from these other French thinkers in that he wants to retain the subject. And so he came up with this idea that the subject is something that comes into being as the result of fidelity to a truth event. And he says that a truth event takes place in four different domains, uh, science, uh, art, politics, and love, the, the amorous world. All of these various spheres um, have come into being through truth events. And let's say a, a truth event is any kind of an event that uh, creates culture, basically. Galileo in the sciences created the scientific truth event that brought us modern science. Haydn uh, in classical music is a truth event that happened there that created the landscape of uh, contemporary classical music and so forth. Uh, Abelard and Heloise in, in the sphere of love 
represent a truth event in that sphere. And what happens is that the subject comes into being through fidelity to a truth event. And the subject is faithful to, has a truth event and is faithful to it, and through fidelity to that and pursuing it, basically this is the French way of saying following your bliss. Uh, what Joseph Campbell used to talk about, about following your bliss, is being faithful to a truth event um, and not betraying it um, no matter what happens. And it renames, a truth event comes into a situation, uh, and it renames everything within that situation. So you get a new vocabulary, and everything w within that situation, whether it's a cultural situation or an amorous one or what have you, creates new signifiers that name that system and give it new codes. And through that, the subject comes into being through uh, the process of generating this truth event. And so that's Alain Badiou. Um So let's take advantage of that to ask the following question. Uh, <clears throat> We have this emerged self, the you know the Western individual, the Viking, and we've got uh, a notion of um, oh maybe that self is dissolved back into its context, and we realize everything we do is in context. Every you know work of art is a commentary on previous works of art. What what do you find, this idea about the individual, where do you find, and we've been talking about where it stands in French philosophical thought, where does it stand in the popular culture you were looking at, the graphic novels, the movies, et cetera? What do they say about the status of this individual? Um, well... I think they say that the, the the individual subject is alive and well <laughs> in uh, popular uh, narratives. Uh, that 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 subjectivity is is very intense and aggressive, and it manifests itself through, you know, the various avatars. Like I was mentioning about popular culture that, that come into being, you know, starting with let's say Tarzan in 1912 that comes out of Pulp Fiction, and also Zorro uh, a year or two later comes out of uh, the realm of Pulp Fiction, and then migrates into comic books with Flash Gordon, um, and then migrates into uh, the, the dime store uh, paperback novel with characters like James Bond um, and so forth. And, and Conan the Barbarian also comes out of uh, pulp fiction. And so in the popular world, the self is, that, that transcendent self, I think, was alive and well and is there and is very aggressive and survived and flourished in pop culture while it was being dismantled on the high cultural plane, starting with Heidegger and then his influence on these French thinkers that led to the dismantling of the self. Uh, that was happening on one plane, while on the plane of the pop culture, it's just been an explosion of the self and uh, the transcendent subject just being this, these aggressive characters and manifesting themselves that way. It's been alive and well, I think. Uh, you know, my studies of graphic novels, like Sin City, for for example, Frank Miller's Sin City, right. uh, where you get the noir character uh, who's very aggressive and uh, encounters, lives in this urban milieu. And it's very interesting to watch the semiotics change and transform. But uh, pop culture has managed to retrieve the mythical consciousness structure and keep it alive and well, even while it was being dismantled on the plane of uh, French thought. Well, that was my impression as well. And, um, I'll, you know, in discussing this, I'll often quote uh, Raymond Chandler, The Simple Art of Murder. He has this passage, Down these mean streets a man must go who is himself, you know, not mean as a man of integrity. And, of course, that's the detective. And then that's every movie from uh, John Wayne or Shane or 
James Bond or um, and then we got a female one with Salt and with uh, some of the uh, Scarlett Johansson movies and uh, what do you make of the dichotomy between the pop culture and the philosophical I mean does that mean the philosophers were just you know, irrelevant and ignored, or is that somehow also both of them part of our existence? Well, I, you know, <clears throat> what happened in the, <clears throat> excuse me, what happened in uh, philosophy was, I think, something that was a natural and <clears throat> inevitable outcome, given the initial parameters of, of Heidegger, for instance. Heidegger is the guy who makes, um, even though he's coming out of the opposite tradition, the German tradition where uh, the self is the strongest and, and the, the transcendent subject. You know, you get Jung's individuation process, and you've got Husserl with his transcendent subject, and, and Kant's uh, subject is what he calls the transcendental unity of apperception. You know, a very fancy phrase for it. But they, the German tradition has really been a very strong tradition that has carried on the self, and Heidegger comes in at the tail end of that um, and begins the process, ironically, of dismantling the self and then. Uh, passing it along to French thought, and then after the war, after World War II is over, the French come along and inherit these initial parameters set up by Heidegger, and they just take it and run with it, and it goes a logical course on its own, uh, entirely independently from what's going on in pop culture. And I think pop culture, there's a certain wonderful naivete about it, where it preserves uh, what Gene Gepser called the magical and the mythical consciousness structures, where they're alive and well. And you can see one of the reasons why I was attracted to popular culture is you can see myths forming out of this sort of magma, this cultural magma of popularity with all of these characters and heroes and narratives. And myth is alive and well in the world of graphic novels and science fiction uh, and horror and fantasy. All of that stuff has carried on the mythical tradition going entirely independently of what's been happening in philosophical thought. But philosophical thought uh, has to, had to follow the parameters uh, that were simply, it's a natural and inevitable evolution as you move from Husserl to Heidegger to Derrida. Um, each thing seems to follow in a, in a logical sequence, and it had to go the way that it went. But I mean, with uh, these other philosophers like uh, Slavoj Zizek and uh, Alain Badiou, they're trying to rescue the self and bring the subject back in, which means uh, I think that it will survive the, the French uh, attempt to deconstruct it. I mean, these French thinkers are even uh, coming up with ideas about the self within French thought. Um, it's not just the German thinkers like Peter Sloterdijk, for instance, or the Slovenian thinker uh, Slavoj Zizek. So, John. Um, they are rescuing the self, and it, it is surviving, and it will survive. And uh, Slavoj Zizek has a wonderful wait, attitude wait, toward wait, all let's, let's go on with that with another show. We've got to wrap up. So we've been talking with John David Ebert. John, thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, John. Yeah, well, listen, we're right in the middle of some great ideas here, so let's do this again. This is John Lobel with Visionaries here on PRN.FM every Monday, and we've been talking with John David Ebert. So go to YouTube and catch his lectures, and go to, um, go to Amazon and buy his books. So, John, thank you. Thank you.